We bring the news. We bring the action. We bring it live. This is 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. You're sitting in the studio with Stephen Squared. We've got Stephen Kravitz. That's me hosting the show. And we've got for the first half hour of our show, we've got a an author interview. And that's Stephen Boyke Sidley. And we're going to be discussing a whole lot of things, including his new book, Free Association, published by uh, Picador Africa. And it's on the shelves at the moment. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you for having me. That's, that's great. I really, really enjoyed the book. Uh, I've read, I read your first, your first book, Entanglement, and now I've read your fourth one. And uh, I have to say, I really, really was, there were hands coming out of the page pulling me into the, into the novel. Oh, that's a lovely quote. <laughs> Can I take that? <laughs> yeah, fine. Uh, you're South African. You're a novelist. You're married to Kate Sidley, who's a well-known playwright and print media personality as well. And you've lived in Los Angeles, but now you're living in Joburg. Yeah. Fill in all the other gaps in your biography. School, you know, where you studied, where you've lived, why, family, and you returned to South Africa. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm an, basically a nice Jewish boy from Johannesburg. I grew up here in Johannesburg, but my mother was American. My father had gone over to the United States in the late 30s to do his master's, and he met my mom over there and brought her back here. And I grew up in Ilovo, and I had an Orthodox bar mitzvah at, at, at Oxford Synagogue and went to Wits to study computer science and then always wanted to go to America because of the influence of my mother and went back to Los Angeles to study. And stayed for the next 17 years completely assimilated in Los Angeles life with, with no thought really of coming back to South Africa until I was forced to come back on a family emergency. And at that stage, Mandela had just gotten out of jail and there was glitter and rainbows in the air. And I had forgotten how much I loved the community here and, and decided to move back and got married shortly thereafter. What did you study in UCLA? I did, I did my Master of Science in UCLA. And in fact, my, my first novel, Entanglement, which you read, is about a physicist, and a lot of it comes from some of the stuff that I, I used to read when I was doing my Master of Sciences. So you're a trained scientist, but now you write novels. Um, yeah, a trained scientist would be overstating the case. I think that a true scientist says you have to have a PhD to call yourself a scientist. But yes, I have a Master of Scientist Science, and I am um, deeply involved in reading about science and other matters. But I, my mother fed me a, a stream of... of Fabulous novels when I was growing up. Obviously, there was there was there was no TV or cell phones and other distractions at the time. So, I would when I'd come home from school, there would be a book next to my bed, and it would be Norman Mailer or Philip Roth or Joseph Heller or John Updike, um, authors, Yel Doctorow of of that stature. And so that was my that was my spare time activity was reading novels when I grew up, and I always like most people, wanted to get back to it as a writer one day and uh, just took a couple of decades longer than I thought it would. We're speaking to Stephen Sidley. The book's free association. We'll be back straight after this ad break. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. This this is People of the Book. We are, as I said earlier, at Stephen Squared, Stephen Kravitz in the hot seat, and Stephen Sidley in the other hot seat. We're talking about his new book, Free Association. And this is, this is, this is your fourth novel. Yes. I remember reading your first one, Entanglement, and now I've read Free Association. As I said earlier, I've been moved by this book, 
and your voice as a writer. Uh, how's the process of writing and having four novels published and also a play which you wrote with your wife, how's that matured and uh, contributed to your writing and to your voice? You know, I'd like to say that, uh, you know, through the journey of four books and a play, writing hasn't got easier. Um, the writing has probably gotten better in some respects, particularly as you filter yourself through various editors and they, they, they impose their, their, their strict disciplinarian view of, of what works and what doesn't. But when you start a new novel, my feeling is, and I've spoken to other writers, they all tend to agree with me, it always feels like starting for the very first time all over again. I have a more confidence in wrestling language to the ground, but my um, confidence in whether I can tell a story that will attract a reader is as terrifying as it was the very first time around. And the only time you really know is if you've got traction is at the end of it and then you hear what the readers have to say. Give us the premise, not too much, of the, the, the narrative, the story of the free association. Okay, so I just want to give you a statistic first. At the center of this book sits one Max Lurie, who at the opening of the book is um, is a podcaster of 33 years old uh, after a, a being having been a failure as a psychologist, unable to heal anybody, and, and a failure as a novelist, never getting any traction. He sort of falls into podcasting. Podcasting is not that well known in South Africa, and the figures in America is there are 50 million people listen to one podcast a week. That's as much as, as as people who read major newspapers. So it is a massive media business. For those of you who have listened or do listen to podcasts, or those of your listeners, you'll know what I'm talking about. This is a deeply compelling, magnetic, and fabulous experience to sit in a traffic jam. In fact, these days, I wish for traffic jams. I love them so much. And I was, I was curious as to why nobody had written a book about a podcaster. Because what happens in the book is the podcast is the life he imagines for himself. It's a narcissistic, navel-gazing description of his own life, vastly embellished in order to entertain his audience. That is interleaved with a third-person narrative who talks about Max Lurie, and his life is not nearly as interesting as the life that he portrays on his podcast. And those two facts, his embellished digital persona and his rather boring real life, run smack into each other with both comedic and tragic results throughout the book. There were a number of other themes I wanted to wrap around in the story. First of all, at the center of the story is the story of a lost gun that he buys off the dark web and which disappears. And anybody who knows their checkoff knows that if you introduce a gun in the first act, it must be used by the third act. And so those are the rails that the book glides on. Wrapped around that is stories of characters with dementia and schizophrenia, of, of, of obviously of interest to anybody who has old relatives. There is a story of a central character who has schizophrenia, a homeless person, and I want to investigate the boundary between sanity and insanity. There is an inappropriate love affair that our, our hero has, and a number of other sub-themes that I want to wrap around the story of the podcaster, his digital persona, his real-life persona, and the gun that goes missing. On the on the issue of podcasts, you really do have a love affair with podcasts. You've said it here, and it comes through the book and your your introduction to the book as well. What are exactly podcasts? What are your favorite podcasts, and what should we all be listening to? Okay, so podcast was an industry that only started about um, 
probably 12 years ago when there was a, a radio announcer and a programmer in Los Angeles who decided that they wanted to capture a program that wasn't broadcast in real time so that you could download it on the Internet and, and listen to it later. But what has happened now is that podcasts have reached such a high art form that when you sit and listen to a good, well-produced podcast, it is as enveloping as a great TV show, a great book or a great movie. I listen to a wide range of podcasts, and I listen about two hours a day, sometimes three. So anytime I'm in the car, and certainly when I'm at the gym. In fact, I used to go to the gym to see to my health, and I go to the gym to listen to podcasts. I listen to science. I listen to fiction. I listen to politics. I listen to psychology. I listen to history. Um, I listen to, and I'll, I'll give you some names. There's This American Life, which is Americana. There's Radio Lab, which is science inflected. There's The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, which is about the veracity of, of logical thinking. There is Sam Harris's Waking Up, which is philosophy and politics. There's Foreign Affairs Roundtable, which is politics. Uh, there are about 20 of them, and I, I simply can't get enough of them because the quality of the stuff out there is so good. Anybody's interested, just type into Google Best Podcasts, and you get a range of subjects that may interest you. Is it the same as downloading an audio f or, or a video on YouTube and listening to it? Was that really not the podcast? No, the original podcast was simply a recording of a radio show. But what they've done now, because they have time, is they drop in music and they drop in sound effects and they cut out the ums and ers. And what comes off the other side is a beautifully produced piece of work. For those of your listeners who were around during the late 60s, you will remember radio shows called Mark Saxon and No Place to Hide on South African Radio or Squat Cars, which were also very well written and very well produced. And everybody would cluster around the radio in 1969, 1970 to listen to them. It is the production values of the podcast rather than the technology that make them so special and this is great because this is sort of a in the highly digital and technologically advanced 20 20 teens we're going back to but it's basically a recorded radio medium and we're calling it podcasts but we're using the mind to engage the mind in the best thoughts of today's best thinkers yes it's you get the best thinkers and you get the best entertainers on these shows and talking about technology is these days you get into your car and your Bluetooth from your car, most cars since the last four or five years have Bluetooth built in and it just pops up and starts playing, you never turn on the radio when I was reading uh, Free Association I felt a very strong similarity between your book and Ian McEwan's Saturday there are the, 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 the ruminations of contemporary 21st century life. There's a bit of violence entered into the, the narrative as well. I found quite a lot of similarities. Well, can I say bingo to you? Because uh, Ian McEwan's Saturday remains one of my favorite books and probably the book that most made me want to become a writer because he, he interplayed a story, a piece of fiction, a novel, with a great amount of tangential ruminations, as you say, about issues that concern the author. And the interlinking of those issues and the story makes, made it a very powerful piece of work. Who else do you, are you paying homage to in your writing? Certainly the great uh, East Coast writers of the United States who I've mentioned, which would be Joseph Heller and Philip Roth and E.L. Doctorow and, and, and people like that who, who wrote grand narratives on, on, on America – on, on love, on, on sex, on politics, which were built into very flawed characters. I'm not a great fan of characters who are one-dimensional or heroes or unflawed. I am surrounded, as we all, by people who are unpredictable 
and people whose views change from day to day and life is messy and I like to write books that feel like real life. In that sense, it's also besides the the similarities to the great East Coast writers of America and say Ian McEwan, it's also the French style novel where the philosophy becomes as much a part of the novel as the narrative as well. Because that happens in your book. A lot of philosophical, political, societal issues actually propel the novel forward. And because you've got your split third-person narrative and the podcast, you're able to show how the thoughts actually become the podcast you 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 playing with the philosophy and the societal the, the social obs, ob, ob, observations as part of your narrative what, what issues interest you to the extent that they make it all the way from your mind to the page well i'm, I'm just going to rewind because you you hit another important point when you compared it to french style novels i've i've, I've read a couple of them in my life but in fact the very first country outside of africa to pick up my books was Belfont in France, and I now have a much larger audience in France than I do in South Africa or anywhere else in the world. They, they seem to, to like that approach and where philosophy is embedded into the story. Sorry, I missed out on the question that you're asking. What, which issues interest you to the extent that they make their journey from your mind to your page? Okay, so, so the issues that I, the themes that I wrap around my characters in, in the process of telling the story are the themes that interest me personally, and they have to do with the, the arbitrariness of life um, w- in which we have one set of ways in which we want to live and ec- the external world impinges upon us and we have to deal with challenges along the way. I'm very deeply into politics, not only South African, but global and and, and and Middle Eastern politics. I'm very into the philosoph the great philosophers and what how they thought they could have a proper life. So there are technology and science uh, is in the book, sanity and insanity, death, the aging of, of loved ones. So the, the themes and in fact, the word free association, the, the title of the book relates to the fact that these things sort of appear and disappear out of the podcast and out of the thought of the of the protagonist. The best part of your day at the heart of your community. All the talk, all the music, all the news. Hi FM. This is People of the Book, and as I said, we're discussing free association with the author. It's local author Stephen Boykis Sidley. It's, it's fascinating to hear that you've got a huge following, a bigger following in France than you have in South Africa, and. Um, in terms of publishing in other countries, where else are you published or going to be published soon? I'm published in South Africa and in Francophone globally, so it would be in France and, and various other places like it, in Francophone Canada. Um, I'm published in England, and I have my first U.S. publishing deal. Um, so my previous book, Imperfect Solo, releases in March 2018. There is a long story behind that. All authors dream about the American deal because America has the largest fiction reading, English fiction reading audience in the world. And in order to get a publishing deal there, you're fighting off hundreds of thousands of other books. And um, I... Um, the dirty little secret that nobody ever tells you is the amount of rejections you have to deal with before you may be lucky enough to get a deal. And I was rejected 250 times before I landed a U.S. deal. So you grow an elephantine skin where you're an author trying to get a U.S. deal. What parallels do you find between Los Angeles and Joburg? Because the book 
free association is set in Los Angeles, but is as equally an American experience novel as it is a South African experience novel. I think it's universal. But you live here, you've lived there, you set your current novel in Los Angeles. Similarities, differences? Well, not only that, but the protagonist of the book, who is our podcaster, is an an American of 33, and his producer is an African Zulu immigrant by the name of Bongani Maposa, who ends up in Los Angeles as, as an immigrant from South Africa for reasons which I won't spoil. I suppose because I am sort of got one foot in the Los Angeles and one foot in Johannesburg, the similarities that I see between the two places, at least the milieu that I grew up in, is that Johannesburg was a was a place filled with huge characters, with big opinions, with um, lots of things to say on any and all subjects, some of them worthwhile and some of them not, but a lot of noise in which to envelop yourself in in order to grow your own opinions. I found very much the same thing in Los Angeles. And so my characters are loud and opinionated and unsure of themselves and overconfident and insecure at the same time. And I grew up amongst people in South Africa and in Los Angeles who feel much the same to me, people without any linear direction. What do you read when you're not writing? I, you know that my my reading world has been has been bumped around a little bit by this new career that I have had for the for the past six or seven years as a novelist. I used to read a lot of novels um, when I was younger and into my twenties, voraciously and all the time. And then I moved to nonfiction and read about philosophy and economics and science and other interest areas in which I was interested in consuming facts. And then when I started writing. I was back to reading fiction as a professional exercise and then discovered South African books because I'm, I'm here. I'm a South African novelist. There are a lot of very good uh, local novels. So I now tend to split my time between South African novelists, which I read for both professional reasons and for pleasure when, when the two coincide, and um, American and English novelists. I have missed out, unfortunately and to my shame, on some of the great Indian novelists, some of the Russian novelists, and some of the continental African novelists that have come out of Nigeria and Kenya. But you know there is only so much time in a day. That's the problem when you're in books. There's only so many things that you can read, and there's just so much that's available. How do you review the relationship between truth and fiction in general, and also how you explore that in the book? Yeah, so so there's there's a, a statement that was made by a writer is that nonfiction um, gives you facts and fictions gives you truth. The truth about living is an elusive and slippery thing. The, tr- the best of fiction tries to get their hands around a version of truth. In this book, I try to get my hands around the version of truth that exists in each one of my characters' heads, and they very turn they often turn out to be very different things. And then also. You have a a very strong theme of psychology going through the book. Max Lurie is a failed psychologist, and he has strong things to say in, critis, in critique of psychology. You have a homeless schizophrenic who is apparently a genius as well. There's a lot of psychological motion throughout the book. What are your views on psychology? Well, I- interestingly, a psychologist is... A, it- Psychologists have popped up in three of my four novels, and the reason is the psychologist is a wonderful, or psychology and psychologists, 
is a wonderful mirror of to of which to bounce a story and a character's ideas because it comes right back that you filtered through the disciplines of why you're thinking about the thing that you're thinking, which is basically what psychology is all about. So every time I start a book, I say I'm not going to put a psychologist in this book and they always end there. My, my character, Max Lurie, is a failed psychologist having been unable to come to terms with any of his patients. And uh, he has a mentor who's a professor of psychology at one of the un- California universities, and I use that person as his moral shill throughout the book. You have very funny inter- uh, dialogues between those two, Max and his professor. Uh, and you actually get this very, very uh, cynical view of psychology coming through. And even the professor, the way that she speaks about her own discipline, creates this very comedy, comic, uh, com- uh, great comedic, comedy, comedic yeah. uh, repartee between the two of them. You, you've managed to give it value, but at the same time, look at it from a, an, an objectively almost neutral but towards dismissive light. But you, 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 you put that, uh, that 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 spin on the on the psychology into the book. Yeah, I, I I start off by by having the professor of psychology give her own cynical view of what psychology is and what it can do and and while the reader may think that there's an attack in psychology it is actually the psychology professor who provides the key uh, later on in the book for our character to sort of solve the mystery of the missing gun then I always ask uh, authors that we have in for interviews what are you working on at the moment uh, I have another, you know, most most writers um, that I know have usually two or three novels in the drawer somewhere that they've written a couple of chapters on and then it's sort of faded away. So I am busy with another novel. I have another play idea that I want to do uh, about the South African political situation, which, of course, is, is a room full of very large elephants right now and is deserving of many stories. I'd like to be able to tell one of them. But I think novel writing is where I'm most comfortable. I have an idea. I don't want to talk about it because it will certainly sort of disappear if, I, if it comes out of my mouth. Uh, are you going on an author tour in America next year when your book is launched? They America? unfortunately don't do author tours until you're famous. So hopefully <laughs> the second or third book that gets launched there, I'll be lucky enough to have found an audience. It's been an absolute pleasure having, uh, having a discussion about free association. Stephen? Thank you so much for coming into the studio. And everyone listening to this show, and it's, it's on, it's, it is podcast on our, on our radio, on our, on our, um, High FM website. So if you're just catching the last few minutes of free association, listen to the podcast and you hear a lot more about podcasts when you listen. Also, the details of the book are on our Facebook page already. Go to Facebook and then look for our page. It's People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM. So if you're driving, you can't write down for your association, Stephen Boyke Sidley. It's all there. Uh, read the little blurb that I've written and then go out and support one of our really well-known Jewish South African writers. It's a great book. As I said, it really pulled me in. Uh, I, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed watching Max Lurie make his way through life for the for the duration of the pages of the book. It was very entertaining, very thought provoking, and it's the type of book that book clubs should go get this book, put it in circulation in your book clubs. It gives you a lot of things to discuss. You're going to see yourself and all your friends in the characters. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We wait for your next book. Thanks so much. 
And uh, I'm going to be continuing with the books that I'm going to review for today's show. Um, but before we do any of that, I just want to mention that there is a book written by an Israeli author that won the Man Booker International Prize. It was announced last week. The book is called A Horse, Horse Walks Into a Bar. And it's by David Grossman. It's published by Jonathan Cape. It is available in the shops at the moment. Uh, David Grossman is one of Israel's most uh, highly recognized authors internationally. And he, together with another Israeli author, was shortlisted for the Man International Prize. That was Amos Oz for his book, Judas. Um, and there were four other writers on that shortlist. But David Grossman won the Man Book International Prize last week. And the book is called A Horse Walks Into a Bar. In Hebrew, Sus Nichnas La Bar. There's no Hebrew word for bar, so we just use the English. And uh, the book itself, I'll review next week. But it's started, just David Grossman's winning of this prize has actually created a bit of a controversy in Israel. So I saw a headline in The Economist, A Horse Walks Into a Controversy. So we'll be discussing <laughs> David Grossman's award, award-winning book next week on the show um, and uh, right now we'll, we'll, we'll have an ad break so that uh, we'll be able to then continue viewing, uh, reviewing some more books in the second half of the show Stay relevant and up to date This is 101.9 High FM This is People of the Book at Stephen Kravitz We've finished our interview with a great local author Stephen Boyke Sidley, the book Free Association, published by Pam Macmillan, uh, reading that uh, that uh, live read about the the book, the, the movie, The Promise, just reminded me that a few week, a few months ago, I reviewed a book called Istanbul, the city of a uh, story of three cities by Bettany Hughes, published by Vadenfelder Nicholson. It's a fantastic book. It's the history of Istanbul. It's a few hundred pages long. And after I read that book, I actually looked Bettany Hughes up on YouTube to see if she talks about her book. And what I discovered is Bettany Hughes is a historian, and she gives she makes documentaries about ancient history and they are just the most fascinating documentaries to watch so that's um just connected to that live read there's a great great book if you want to know more about constantinople its current name istanbul there is the bettany hughes book on the city it's called istanbul it is available in shops and uh if you really if you're going there it's a it's a, it's a great tourist attraction. It's a great place for tourism. But it's always nice to know the history of the place. So that's Bettany Hughes' book, Istanbul, as well. Now for the rest of the book show, I've got a whole lot of books that I want to talk about. And it's just the difficult thing is deciding which one to talk about first. The first one I'm going to look at, it's definitely available in the shops. It came out earlier this year in April, May time. And it's called The Twelve... Lives of Samuel Hawley. It's by Hannah Tinto. It's published by Tinder Press. And to start off with, the the copy that I've got, it's uh, it's an advanced copy for reviewers, has a letter by the publisher written in the front. And this let the the letter that she writes really jumped out. 
to me when I first received the book. The Twelve Bullets of Samuel Hawley is a book I fell in love with in a heartbeat. The opening scene is a tour de force and it doesn't it up from there. I actually finished it on my feet, so caught up was I in the drama and suspense of it all. Delightfully, it's had the same effect on everyone here at Tinder Press. I'm going to be I'm going to keep this brief because I want you to get on with reading it. So if you love Tarantino at his best, or you fell in love with Leon, that's the Kit Duval book, this will very likely be for you. If the Sisters Brothers or Shotgun Love Songs, that's Shotgun Love Songs is by Nicholas Butler, were up your alley, I've no doubt you'll feel the love too. Simply put, it's a story about a father of, of a father's attempt to protect his teenage daughter from his criminal past and what happens when this past comes hurtling into their present. It's a book about survival and I think at heart a book about love and the strange and wonderful things it enables us to do. It's the most virtuoso piece of storytelling I've encountered in years. I promise you, you've not read a novel quite like this. Netflix could learn a thing or two from Hannah Tinto and her book, The Twelve Lives of Samuel Hawley. This is a coming-of-age adventure, a love story. It's also a literary thriller and has appeared on many, many must-read or most-anticipated book lists this year. Um, Tinto, the author, is, is the author of a librarian, and she, in an interview, she turned to, she said she turned to her bookshelf while writing, and she plucked a volume of ancient mythology off the shelf. Samuel Hawley, the main character in the book, he's the father. He's in his forties. He's a rugged, gun-toting single father, and he's got twelve bullet scars. And in the passage of the novel he explains how he got those 12 bullet scars these 12 bullet scars were inspired by the 12 labors that Hercules performed as penance for murdering his family uh, Hannah Tinta said there are dark stories behind heroes terrible things they have to do to accomplish their goals and she tried to put that into the book so this is um, the 12 the twelve, the twelve bullets of Samuel Tint, of Samuel Hawley, uh, by Hannah Tinto, and it's a great, great book of the tension between people's best and basest behaviours, and how we struggle to reconcile our current and former selves. So, if you're looking for a great, great book across the whole of you know the whole American landscape, uh, it's one part Quentin Tarantino, another part. Uh, 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 a Thousand and One Arabian Nights, bit of Greek mythology put in, and then you've got the American la landscape. Uh, that's the 12, the 12 Bullets of Samuel Hawley. More books straight after this ad break. A frequency like no other. 101.9 High FM. Back to the books. Looking at a whole number of different books, we're reviewing them here on the show. We've mentioned and we interviewed Stephen Sidley about free association. We've looked at a book called The Twelve Bullets of Samuel Hawley by Hannah Tinto. Great uh, literary thriller, uh, love story or also coming of age story and a father uh, a very, very conflicted father's love for his for his daughter. Then the next book we're going to look at is quite something different. This is called A Talent for Murder, and it's by Andrew Wilson. Andrew Wilson is a biographer 
quote uh, of a number of people. Patricia Howsmith, she wrote uh, crime, crime Murder Mysteries. Uh, the, the talented Mr. Ripley, he's also been uh, written biographies on Sylvia Plath and Alexander McQueen. Now he's written a book called A Talent for Murder. And in this book, he takes real events in the life of Agatha Christie and he uses them as the springboard for a crime novel. In the, the facts that we know is that in December 20, 1926, the world-famous author Agatha Christie suddenly goes missing, only to be discovered in a Harrogate hotel 10 days later. But whatever happened during her dramatic disappearance? This is the gap in the historical record that Andrew Wilson attempts to, well, makes a very, very successful attempt in fiction to fill. Now, it's difficult to do this. It's difficult to write a crime murder mystery using Agatha Christie in your book. It's almost like writing a play and using Shakespeare in it. If, if, if you don't pull it off 100% successfully, it's just going to look like a botched attempt. But, thank goodness, uh, Andrew Wilson has the talent for this. He has the talent to pull off a talent for murder in his book. He, Wilson is obviously playing with high stakes. Now, what is Agatha Christie's story? She was working as a pharmacist in 1920 when she was challenged by her sister Madge to come up with a detective story, which she duly did, featuring, featuring a five foot four inches retired Belgian police officer, and she remains the best-selling novelist of all time. The only writer, she's the only writer to have created two great recurring detective characters, Perrault and Jane Marple, and she was also the only woman ever to have three plays running simultaneously in the West End. So, And we all know that Agatha Christie is one of the most beloved writers of crime murder mysteries. Now, Andrew Wilson takes the challenge up of putting Agatha Christie into a crime thriller. And he puts her in there with a very strong puzzle element that's part of his own plot – just as it is in Christie's own works. There are multiple unexpected twists in this book and at least one entirely unexpected murder. But these are just the most obviously enticing aspects of the novel. Just as impressive or even more so is the, shuff, the subtly shifting points of view which moves from one center of consciousness to another and Andrew Wilson is able to also pull the author entirely into the plot. Um, in this way, this book is more similar to the Patricia Harsmith Ripley novels than it is to Agatha Christie's books. But then that's absolutely fine because Andrew Wilson wrote a biography on Patricia Harsmith and now he's putting Agatha Christie into his crime fiction. Now, what's the story? As I said, in 1926, Agatha Christie disappears. That's when... She, she finds out that her husband, Archie, is having an affair with a younger woman. Now, fans of Agatha Christie already would know this before they even pick up the um, Andrew Wilson's book because it's this revelation about Archie's affair that prompts Agatha Christie's flight to Harrogate where she's holed up in a hotel under an assumed name. Even now, her disappearance remains shrouded in mystery. No one knows quite what happened or why. And even in her own 
memoirs she left these 10 days out. Uh, not to spoil the book by revealing much more, but the plot relies on Christie's superior knowledge of poison and there's a superintendent in the police force, William Kenwood. He's the deputy um, chief constable, a real plot of a plot. And there's also a cynical reporter all going to the mix. And Wilson actually creates that particular shade of darkness that runs through all of Agatha Christie's books. Um, he leaves off at the end of this book, Andrew Wilson leaves off with enough loose ends to start a whole series using Agatha Christie in uh, in, uh, in, crime, in crime thrillers. So this is uh, the book A Talent for Murder by Andrew Wilson. It's published by Simon & Schuster. It's a great, great act of literary homage to Agatha Christie by using her in a crime thriller. Now, something absolutely, totally different. This is people who enjoy their their fiction slightly more experimental it's a book called you too can have a body like mine it's by alexandra kleeman it's published by fourth estate and it's absolutely different from anything you've ever read before people don't even have names they just have letters a lives with b now a and b are both women b seems to be coming more and more like a If A's boyfriend C likes A because A is A, but now B is the same as A, where does that leave A? Then what has happened to the family across the street who left one afternoon just out of the blue, covered in sheets with holes cut out for their eyes? And where have middle class dads been disappearing to? Can you ever actually feel full? And then what is all of this about? This is Alexandra Kleeman's book, You Too Can Have a Body Like Me. She has been published in the New Yorker, the Paris Review, um, and other other literary journals. Her nonfiction essays and reportage have appeared in Harper's, Tin House, and N Plus One, and The Guardian. This is her first novel. She lives in New York. And in You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine, what she wants to do is she wants to investigate Contemporary society's obsession with consumerism, consumption, commodification, and conformity. Those are the four C's. So she really, really writes a totally offbeat novel where she investigates our obsessions with these four things. This is sort of like the the movie Single White Female with one woman wanting to take over the identity of another, but with you know, right now the the, uh, the the Handmaid's Tale, the Margaret Atwood novel that's been made into movie, is the the current point of reference that everything's being compared to. So there's a little bit of that Atwoodian dystopia thrown in as well. But it's it's looking at how we, in the 21st century, how we cons- how we obsessed with consumerism, consumption, commodification, and conformity. That's Alexandra Kleeman. It's for more adventurous literary readers. You too can have a body like mine, published by Fourth Estate. We'll be back with a few more reviews straight after this ad break. Connecting our community. Choose The 101.9 High The next book I'm going to review, it's called The 14th Letter. It's by Claire Evans. It's published by Sphere. 
and it's so difficult to try condense everything the book is about. It's um, it's four hundred and twenty some four hundred and forty pages, but it has so much in it. We start off in London in the summer of eighteen eighty one. Phoebe Stanbury is murdered at her own engagement party by a mysterious stranger who whispers to her fiancé, I promised I would save you. The following morning, just a few miles away, a timid young legal clerk greets a reclusive client whom he has never meant who he was never meant to meet. The clerk is asked to keep safe a small casket of yellowing papers and delivers an enigmatic message the finder knows. What could possibly link these two events together? And what does the message mean? So this is the, the, the springboard for uh, the 14th letter. Now, there's so much information or historical uh, research that went into this book just for that starting point. The, 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 the title, The 14th Letter, is based on the fact that Plato – the great Greek philosopher wrote 35 dialogues and 13 letters. So the 14th letter is a fictional letter that's ascribed to Plato. So we, we, we're following an ancient, an ancient Greek writings all the way through to the modern day. And it's going to involve everything from technology to world politics all through London in 1881. 1881 was a massive year for international politics. It was the year of the assassination of the Russian Tsar Alexander II, also the American president James Garfield. Um, democracy was becoming a very, very uh, popular cause in the West for the, the fight for universal suffrage. It's also the year of German unification and the beginning of the European power scramble for Africa. All of this gets put into the book. So we're dealing with conspiracies. We're dealing with a whole lot of secrets, um, murdered bride, legacy of secrets, um, magic and mystery and murder all going together into a book that at the very core of it, we then get to eugenics and the progression of all of these different themes through a really exciting conspiracy novel set in the 1880s. So that's the 14th letter for people, I suppose, if you're growing up and you, you read Harry Potter when you were growing up, now you want something similar but much more mature for the adult reader. That's the 14th letter. We've got time for a few more books still. The next one is, uh, okay, time for one more book. And I'm going to talk about a book called Displaced by Stephen Abarbanel. It was written originally in German. It's been translated into English. And uh, Stephen Abar Stephen Abarbanel, uh, is, he's a Jewish German. Uh, the book is published by John Murray. It is 1946, and the full horrors of the previous seven years are slowly coming to light. But in Jerusalem, Elias Lind cannot accept that his brother Raphael really did die in a concentration camp. He has evidence that the scientist is still alive, but, unable to search for him himself, he persuades a young member of the Jewish resistance to help. Lilia's search for Raphael takes her from the dusty streets of Jerusalem to the heart of political London. 
from US-controlled Munich to an overcrowded and underfunded displaced persons camp before leading her to the devastated shell of Berlin itself. But before long, Lilia realizes that she isn't the only one searching for the missing scientist. A mysterious pursuer is hot on her heels, and it soon becomes clear that Raphael's life isn't the only one in question. Now, the the book has an afterward, and I just want to read that because it gives you a sense of why the book was written in the first place. Germany, summer 1946, was a time between times. Everything was displaced. Nothing was where it used to be. The injuries caused by the war and the dictatorship went deep and could be seen and felt everywhere. And it is through this shadowy world, marked by stray hopes, fears, traumas, guilt and wounds, that we accompany a young woman from Palestine on her journey to on a journey to Germany. As an author who lived in Germany and who was born not much more than 10 years after the events described here and who is aware of his Jewish roots, I wanted to describe this country in the shadow of catastrophe, this time between times, as it were, from an external perspective. I wanted to approach it from a different tentative angle with the foreign and clever point of view of a young woman who is inextricably linked and affected by everything that she learns and is yet unaffected. So this is the book Displaced by Stefan Abarbanel. It's published by John uh, Murray Publishers and it's also available in the bookshops. Um, I wanted to get through two more books today, but we have to keep them for next week. Uh, I'll be in next week. I'm going to review the David Grossman book, Horse Walks Into a Bar, and then we look at more books as well to get you ready for your holiday reading. And from me, good Shabbos and continue reading. Go out and look for the Stephen Sidley book in your local bookstore. He really, really deserves to be more widely read in South Africa than in France. And until next week, good Shabbos and keep reading.